Hello, and welcome to All Things Plantagenet. My name is Donnie Hazel, and I am your host. To all of my original listeners, welcome back. To those new to the show, welcome. I am a storytelling historian with a great love for the Plantagenet dynasty, as I am a direct descendant to Geoffrey of Anjou via my paternal line on my grandmother Carter's side. I descend through Diana Skipwith, daughter of Sir Henry Skipwith and Amy Kemp. Diana married Captain Thomas Carter. They immigrated to the Americas in 1650, settling in Barford in Lancaster County, Virginia. So with that said, please like and download the show as it helps other listeners learn about the show. If you wish to support this podcast, there is a link for you to do so, and it would be much appreciated as it would help with costs of maintaining the website www.allthingsplantagenet.com where you can find the podcast as well as extra items for each episode you can read or download. You can also find great books and videos for sale as well. Feel free to also visit our Facebook page. A link is provided as well on the website. Okay, on to the episode. Sought safety in flight, he had no ambition to command his own armies as the other monarchs of his age had done, but his wisdom had made him lay his hand upon Du Guesclin as the fit person to be general. In spite of the agreement which the English had made with the King of Navarre, they were still afraid of him, for they heard that he had again begun to treat with Henry of Trastamara. The Black Prince ordered two of the frontier towns of Navarre to be invested with English troops and compelled the King of Navarre to accompany the army until it had safely passed through his dominions. They crossed the Pyrenees by the pass of Roncesvalles. The passage through these narrow defiles was most dangerous and difficult, as it was now the middle of winter. The entire army was almost overwhelmed by a frightful snowstorm which overtook them in the mountains. They suffered great loss both in men and beasts, but at last reached the valley of Pamplona, where they stopped to recruit their forces. Whilst they were waiting there, the King of Navarre, as he was riding about, was taken prisoner by a French captain. He was supposed to have purposely allowed this to happen, that he might be freed from all further personal responsibilities as to the war. One of his knights, however, conducted the prince through the kingdom of Navarre and provided guides for the army through the difficult mountain roads. The army crossed the deep and rapid Ebro by the bridge at Logrono, and encamped near the little town of Navarrete. Don Henry and Du Guesclin were not far off, encamped near Najera on the little river Najeria. From Navarrete the black prince sent his manifesto to Don Henry. In this he stated that he had come to restore the legitimate king to his throne, and expressed his amazement that Henry, who had sworn allegiance to his brother, should have ventured afterwards to take up arms against him and drive him from his rightful throne. He called God and St. George to witness that he was willing, even now, to settle the dispute by mediation. But if that were refused, there was nothing left for it but to fight. Henry answered on the following day. He said that the whole kingdom had fallen away from Don Pedro and attached themselves to him, that it was heaven's doing and no one had a right to interfere. He also, in God's name and Santiago's, had no desire for a battle. But he forbade the enemy to press any further into his country. On their march to Legrono, the prince's army had suffered much from want of provisions. He was therefore eager for a battle as soon as possible. But the enemy waited to attack till all their troops should have arrived. Sir William Felton went with a body of men to reconnoitre the enemy, but was attacked by a large number of French and Spaniards and was slain after a most valiant fight. Sir Hugh Calvely, another of the bravest English knights, was also surprised and slain by a large body of Spaniards who had gone out under Donteo, Henry's brother, to reconnoitre the English army. These successes filled the Spaniards with joy and confidence. Henry said to his brother, I will reward you handsomely for this, and I feel all the rest of our enemies must at last come to this pass. But on this one of the French knights spoke up and bade him not to be too confident, for with the black prince was the flower of chivalry of the whole world, all hardy and tough combatants, 
who would die rather than think of flying but he added if you follow my advice you can take them all without striking a blow he then advised henry simply to keep watch over all the passes and defiles so that no provisions could be brought to the english army and when famine had done its work to attack them as they retreated this advice was very sound and would doubtless have been successful if it had been followed but henry was far too impetuous a knight to be content to pursue a policy of inaction he crossed the little river Nahadia with his army and spread out his forces in a beautiful open plain which was broken neither by tree nor bush for a great distance the army was divided into three battalions and their front was covered by men who threw stones with slings when all was formed in order henry mounted a handsome mule and rode through the ranks exhorting and encouraging the men the black prince meanwhile was not very far off the previous night he had been encamped at a distance of only two leagues from the enemy and was now marching to meet him in full battle array he crossed a hill to reach the plain where henry's army lay and advanced down a long deep valley the sun was just rising when the two armies came in sight of one another and it was a beautiful sight says foissart to see the battalions as they advanced to meet their brilliant armour glittering in the sunbeams the prince mounted a hill that he might see the spaniards and after observing them ordered his army to halt and spread out in line of battle immediately before the battle he raised sir john chandos to the rank of a knight banneret to the great joy of those knights and squires who fought under sir john then the prince spoke a few words to the army to-day sirs he said has as you well know no other termination but in famine for want of food we are well-nigh taken see there are your enemies who have food enough bread and wine and fish salt and fresh from the river and the sea these we must now obtain by dint of lance and sword now let us do such a day's work that we may part from our foes with honour then he knelt down and prayed o very sovereign father who hast made and fashioned us so truly as thou knowest that i am not come hither but to defend the right for prowess and for liberty that my heart leaps and burns to obtain a life of honour i pray thee that on this day thou wilt guard me and my people after which he rose and exclaimed advance banners god defend the right then turning to don pedro he took him by the hand and said certainly sir king to-day you shall know if ever you shall recover castile have firm trust in god then the battle began the first battalion of the english army commanded by john of gaunt and chandos engaged the french contingent of the spanish army commanded by du Guesclin. john of gaunt encouraged his men shouting advance banners advance let us take god to our rescue and each to his honour meanwhile the prince near whom rode don pedro attacked the second division of the spanish army commanded by don tello at the first encounter the spanish troops were seized with terror and fled in wild confusion so that the prince was at liberty to engage the main body of the enemy commanded by henry here the spaniards encouraged by the presence of their king fought with much greater bravery the stones thrown with great force from the slings of the spanish foot-soldiers did much harm to their opponents and many were unhorsed by them but the english arrows flew straighter than rain in winter-time and the spanish cavalry began to break before them thrice henry rallied his men but at last it was hopeless and he was obliged to fly du Guesclin and his french soldiers also gave the dukes of lancaster and chandos plenty to do chandos was unhorsed and only saved his life by his great coolness and presence of mind the french knights bore themselves most valiantly du Guesclin, who would never fly even though he saw the day was lost was surrounded and taken prisoner the spaniards and french fled across the river to the town of nahara many were killed in crossing the bridge so that the river was dyed red with the blood of men and horses the english and gascons entered the town with them and took many of the knights and killed many of the people in henry's lodgings they found much plate and jewels for he had come there with great splendour the english victory was complete 
at noon the battle was over and the black prince ordered his banner to be fixed in a bush on a little height as a rallying point for his men on the return from the pursuit the duke of lancaster and others among the knights did the same and the men soon gathered round the different banners in good order the prince bade that they should look among the dead for the body of henry of trastamara and also discover what men of rank had been slain he then descended with don pedro and his knights to king henry's lodgings there they found plenty of everything at which they rejoiced greatly for they had suffered great want before when the men returned from searching the battlefield don pedro was much displeased at hearing that his brother was not among the slain the slaughter had been very great amongst the common soldiers besides those lying dead on the battlefield many were drowned in the river that night the army rested in ease and luxury enjoying plenty of food and wine next morning which was palm sunday pedro's mind was already full of thoughts of revenge he came to the prince and asked that he should give up to him all the spanish prisoners the traitors of his country that he might cut off their heads but the prince answered him sir king i entreat and beg of you to pardon all the ill which your rebellious subjects have done against you thus you will do an act of kindness and generosity and will remain in peace in your kingdom pedro was not in a position to refuse the prince's request since he owed everything to him and he had to pardon all the spanish nobles excepting one who in some manner had earned his special anger and whom the prince gave up to him he was beheaded in front of don pedro's tent before his very eyes the next day the army set out on its march toward burgos and the citizens who knew that resistance was useless opened their gates to don pedro the prince and his army encamped in the plain outside the town as there was not comfortable quarters for them all inside here the return of don pedro was celebrated with tournaments banquets and processions and the black prince presided as judge over all the tournaments all castile yielded to don pedro and the black prince might congratulate himself that he had done his work speedily and well he exhorted pedro on every occasion to treat his people well and pardon their revolt from his rule saying to him i advise you for your good if you would be king of castile that you send forth word that you have consented to give pardon to all those who have been against you pedro promised everything he asked and as long as the black prince stayed by his side he did not dare to indulge his desire for vengeance but when the prince had been a month at burgos he began to be impatient to return to his own dominions he had as yet received none of the promised money from pedro in payment of the expenses of the campaign he therefore told the king that he was anxious to return and disband his army and demanded the money to pay his troops pedro said that he fully intended to pay as he had promised but at that moment he had no money at seville however he had a large treasure and if the black prince would allow him to depart he would go and fetch it meanwhile he proposed that the prince and his army should quarter themselves in the fertile country round valladolid he promised to bring him the money at whitsuntide the black prince himself always honest and straightforward was ever ready to trust to others and easily agreed to do as pedro proposed it was a fatal step for once away from pedro's side he lost all hold upon him the prince's army established itself round valladolid and the free companies supported themselves by pillaging the peasants the summer drew on and the army began to suffer from the hot climate disease broke out in the camp and it is said that four out of every five of the soldiers died whitsuntide came but brought no money from pedro the prince grew more and more uneasy at last he sent three of his knights to the spanish king to ask him why he did not keep his promise to them pedro professed great sorrow that he had not been able to send the money sooner and repeated his promises but said that he could not drain his people of money and above all he could not send any money so long as the free companies were in the country for they did so much harm if the prince would send the companies away and only let some of his knights remain he would soon send the money when this answer was brought back to the prince he became very sad for he saw clearly that don pedro did not mean to keep his promises 
his own health was failing he had been attacked by an illness which was never to leave him bad news was brought him from bordeaux the princess wrote that henry of trastamara was attacking the frontiers of aquitaine his army was rapidly dwindling before his eyes man after man died from the effects of the climate there was nothing for it but to return to bordeaux in sadness he gathered his troops together and felt thankful that he was allowed to pass peaceably through navarre and the dangerous passes of the pyrenees at bayonne he disbanded his army now only a miserable remnant of the magnificent array of troops which he had led into spain he bade them come to bordeaux to receive the payment due to them he said to them that though dom pedro had not kept his engagements it did not become him to act in like manner to those who had served him so well on his arrival at bordeaux he was received with solemn processions the priests coming out to meet him bearing crosses the princess followed with her eldest son edward then three years old surrounded by her ladies and knights they were full of joy at meeting one another again and embraced most tenderly and then walked together hand in hand to their abode soon after the prince assembled all the nobles of aquitaine who had joined in this expedition thanked them heartily for their help and distributed among them rich presents of gold and silver and jewels End of section fifteen though crowned with success the spanish expedition was most fatal in its consequences to the black prince his victory in spain had caused him to be esteemed as the greatest among the princes and generals of europe the news of it had been received in england with enthusiastic joy bonfires rejoicings and thanksgivings in the churches had celebrated all over the country but what was the result the prince had restored for a moment a bloodthirsty tyrant to the throne and in return for that had impoverished his exchequer and shattered his health he returned to bordeaux a disappointed man don pedro had failed in all his promises and the only results of this expedition to the prince were broken health and crippled resources a change seems to have come over the prince's character after this he lost his bright confidence and cheerful fearlessness and became morose and discontented he was pressed by the want of the necessary money to keep up the expenses of his extravagant court and this and his illness weighed down his spirits to his enemies who had so long trembled before him it seemed that the hour had come when they might safely attack him by the treaty of bretigny edward the third had promised to renounce forever his claim to the french crown and in return the french king had promised to renounce his sovereignty over the english provinces in france which were henceforth to be held as independent possessions owing no right of allegiance to the french crown time had passed on and for one reason or another the formal renunciation of these claims had never been made it was perhaps only natural that both sides should put off as long as possible the moment when they must definitely give up what they had so long clung to charles v king of france had probably never really intended to conform to the peace of bretigny it had been concluded in his father's lifetime and had been wrung from him only by the miserable condition of france after the battle of poitiers for the moment he was ready to agree to anything and wait for the time when he might be able to win back what he had lost part of the ransom of king john was still unpaid with characteristic generosity edward had allowed many of the hostages to go to france on giving their word that they would come back but most of them never returned and his demands to charles for payment of the rest of the money passed unheeded charles who was quietly gathering strength whilst he waited a favourable moment for attacking the black prince must have seen with delight the false step which his enemy took in aiding pedro the cruel it soon became clear how fruitless the spanish expedition had been the prince had hardly reached bordeaux when henry of trastamara who had been attacking the frontiers of aquitaine withdrew his army thence and crossed the pyrenees into aragon to prepare for a second invasion of castile 
he was anxious to have again the aid of du guesclin but du guesclin unfortunately was still a prisoner in the black prince's hands and knew not how to raise the money wanted for his ransom one day when the prince was in good humour he called du guesclin to him and asked him how he was i was never better my lord was the answer i cannot be otherwise than well for i am though in prison the most honoured knight in the world how so asked the prince they say in france as well as in other countries answered du guesclin that you are so much afraid of me and have such a dread of my gaining my liberty that you dare not set me free and this is my reason for thinking myself so much valued and honoured the prince did not like this for he knew that it was partly the truth he at once offered du guesclin his liberty for a much smaller sum than had been asked before his counsel tried to dissuade him from keeping this agreement but the prince speaking like a good and loyal knight said since we have granted it we will keep it and not act in any way contrary it was not long before du guesclin was able to pay the money and hastened to join henry who was already successfully invading castile most of the towns opened their gates to him and he defeated pedro in battle and pursued him to the fortress of montiel here by some means or other pedro and henry met face to face so great was their hatred for one another that pedro immediately threw himself upon his brother and being the stronger threw him down upon the ground under himself but henry managed to draw his long spanish knife and plunging it into pedro killed him on the spot after this he was secure in his possession of the throne of castile and had no longer to fear any rival this event of course entirely destroyed any hopes the black prince might still have of getting the money due from pedro he had not enough money himself to pay more than half of what was due to the companies which had fought under his banner they on being disbanded went off to ravage the french territory which did not tend to make the french feel more friendly to the black prince's rule in truth it is impossible to deny that he showed little talent as an administrator in his position as ruler of aquitaine his subjects were rapidly growing more and more discontented and many of the chief nobles who had at first crowded to swear allegiance to him through mere terror of his name now began secretly to draw near to france by a fatal mistake of policy he managed to estrange his subjects still further he was deeply in debt and had no money either to defray the expenses of his court or to prepare for a long struggle with france which he felt must soon be inevitable he felt therefore that it was necessary to impose a tax upon his subjects and he hit upon the most burdensome tax he could have discovered he proposed to the assembly of the states of his duchy that a hearth tax should be levied for five years that is for every fire upon the hearth an annual duty should be paid this kind of tax was particularly oppressive as it fell unequally the poor paid more in proportion to their small means than did the rich hence the tax caused great discontent especially among the gascon barons the lords of armagnac d'aubray comminges and many others the whole province seemed to weary of the english rule the people resented naturally enough the ravages and extortions of the three companies and complained that the english nobles were arrogant and overbearing the king of france watched eagerly this growing discontent but he remained quiet until he had concluded an offensive and defensive alliance with henry of trastamara the gascon lords in their discontent at the new tax claimed to have a right of appeal to the king of france as if he had still been the feudal superior of the duchy to whom the vassals might carry their complaints against their lord this claim of appeal greatly angered the black prince for in the treaty of bretigny the king of france had agreed to renounce all rights over aquitaine and therefore should receive no appeals but the gascons said that it was not in the power of the king of france to renounce these rights without the consent of the barons and cities of aquitaine and this consent had never been given and would never be given the dispute as was natural only increased the ill-will between the prince and his subjects from all sides the king of france was advised to seize this favourable moment 
for attacking the prince he was told that as soon as he declared war all the barons and cities of aquitaine would turn to his side for all were discontented with the english rule at last on the twenty fifth january thirteen sixty nine he summoned the black prince to appear before the court of his peers at paris and answered the complaints brought against him by his vassals this proceeding was of course entirely contrary to the treaty of bretigny it was treating the prince as if he were a vassal of france whereas according to the treaty the king of france had entirely renounced his claim to the allegiance of aquitaine by treating the black prince as a vassal he therefore distinctly threw down the gauntlet of war great was the anger of the prince when this summons reached him when the commissioners who had brought the letter had read it to him he looked at them for a moment in silence and then burst forth in rage we will willingly come to paris on the day appointed he said but it will be with our helmet on our head and sixty thousand men at our back he would give no other answer to the commissioners and after they had gone his anger burnt so hot against them that he sent some of his knights after them to seize them and to bring them back to prison let them not he said go and tell their prattle to the duke of anjou who loves us little and say how they have summoned us personally in our own palace the king of france was indignant when he heard of the answer of the black prince and of the treatment which his commissioners had met with he made immediate preparations for war he sent a challenge to the king of england by a common valet a kitchen boy that he might make it as insulting as possible both england and its king were sunk in the enjoyments of peace the king was growing old and loved ease and luxury the country was weary of war and absorbed in trade and manufacture still the challenge of the king of france stung their pride and threw edward the third into a mighty passion he determined to reassert his claim to the crown of france and opened the war with vigour he sent the duke of lancaster with an army to calais to invade the north of france and his son edmund duke of cambridge with troops to assist the black prince in aquitaine the black prince established his camp at angouleme the services of the various free companies were eagerly bid for by both the combatants and many were engaged on either side the french soon began their inroads upon the prince's territory he lay at angouleme helpless from illness and almost wild with vexation at hearing of the advance of his enemies a desultory warfare began in which neither side gained any considerable advantage but the french seemed to be pressing on further whilst the disaffection of the chief nobles and the illness of the prince tended more and more to break up the unity of the english provinces in the north the duke of lancaster did nothing but burn and ravage the enemy's country the french army which had been sent against him had been expressly ordered not to engage battle the remembrance of the english victories was still too vivid in the minds of the french the death in a chance skirmish of his valued friend and wise counsellor sir john chandos was a serious blow to the prince he was seneschal of poitou and was very anxious to drive back the french who had taken some strong places there he attacked a body of the enemy much superior in number to his own force and fell upon them with scoffs and jeers but as he was advancing on foot he slipped on the ground made slippery by the frost he was entangled in the long robe of white samite which he wore under his armour according to the fashion of those days and stumbled a french squire seized this opportunity to make a thrust at him sir john had lost an eye five years before and the thrust being made on his blind side he could not see to ward it off to the dismay of his followers he fell back rolling in death agony on the ground they fought desperately eager to revenge his fall but owing to their small number were obliged to surrender to the french soon after they were released by the arrival of a large body of english troops to whom the french in their turn had to yield chandos was discovered lying so severely wounded that he was unable to speak great were the lamentations of the english for all loved and revered him there was no knight more valiant or courteous than he his servants gently disarmed him and he was laid on a litter made of shields and targets and so was slowly carried at a foot-pace to morteme the nearest fort 
he only lived one day and night and was buried by his friends at Mortemé. on his tomb was written this epitaph in french i john chandos an english knight seneschal of all poitou against the french king oft did fight on foot and horseback many slew bertrand de guclin prisoner too by me was taken in a veil at lonsac did the foe prevail my body then at mortemé in a fair tomb did my friends inter in the year of grace divine thirteen hundred sixty nine foissart says of chandos that never since a hundred years did there exist one more courteous nor fuller of every virtue and good quality what the english cause lost by his death can hardly be estimated his valour and wisdom might have prevented the loss of aquitaine it was early in thirteen seventy that chandos was slain that year charles v determined to strike a decisive blow two armies under his brothers the dukes of anjou and berry the former assisted by the great general du guesclin were to invade aquitaine at the same time they advanced with great success taking one city after another limoges the capital of limousin was surrendered into their hands by its bishop who turned traitor news of the loss of this important city was brought to the black prince as he lay upon his bed of sickness in a frenzy of rage he sat up in his bed and exclaimed the french hold me dead but if god give me relief and i can once leave this bed i will again make them feel now that it was too late to gain the affections of his people he had at the advice of edward the third remitted the hearth tax but this seemed to the people only a sign of weakness he also offered in the name of his father the royal pardon to all those who had revolted if they would return to their allegiance the duke of lancaster had arrived in aquitaine to aid him in the conduct of affairs on account of his broken health the black prince's authority in aquitaine seemed to be gone but the french successes the loss of limoges and the treachery of its bishop roused him to make a last effort he swore by the soul of his father that he would have limoges back again and would make the inhabitants pay dearly for their treachery he mustered his forces at cognac and prepared to march toward limoges when he took the field and all his men-at-arms were drawn out in battle array the whole country was filled with fear his name had not yet lost its terror he could not mount on horseback but was obliged to be carried in a litter he found limoges well defended but he made his army encamp all round it and swore he would never leave the place till he had taken it limoges was too well garrisoned to be taken by assault and the english therefore prepared to lay siege to it they had with them a large body of miners and the prince gave orders that the walls should be mined after a month all was ready the garrison of the town tried by countermining to destroy the work of the prince's miners but failed and the miners having filled their mines with combustibles set fire to them the explosion threw down a large piece of the wall the english who were all ready and waiting for the right moment rushed in through the breach whilst others attacked the gates so quickly was it done that the french had no time to resist then the prince borne on his litter and john of gaunt and the other nobles rushed into the town with their men the soldiers eager for booty ran through the town killing men women and children according to the orders given by the prince from his litter it was a most melancholy business says foissart for all ranks ages and sexes cast themselves on their knees before the prince begging for mercy but he was so inflamed with passion and revenge that he listened to none but all were put to the sword wherever they could be found the garrison meanwhile had drawn themselves up in a body and stood with their backs to an old wall determined to fight to the last the duke of lancaster and the earl of cambridge advanced to attack them and in order to be on an equality with them dismounted from their horses before they began the fight the english were greatly superior in number but the french fought so bravely that they were able to hold their own for some little time the prince watched the combat with deep interest the sight of the bravery of the knights at last roused again his nobler and more generous emotions and he shouted out that the lives of those french knights who would surrender should be spared whereupon the french gave up their swords and yielded themselves prisoners the bishop was also taken prisoner the whole town was burnt and pillaged and utterly destroyed 
the black prince worn out with suffering and disease seemed to wish to revenge himself by one act of relentless cruelty for the loss of all his power and authority in france the sack of limoges shows us the dark side of chivalry we must not blame the black prince too severely for it in sacrificing the innocent inhabitants of a whole city to his revenge he was only acting in accordance with the spirit of the age in which he lived the views of life in which he had been educated had taught him no respect for human life as such his generous emotions were not called out by the piteous suffering of women and children but by the brave fighting of men-at-arms this was what chivalry led to and all its bright features cannot make us forgive its disregard of human suffering doubtless this terrible sack is a blot upon the black prince's character but we could hardly have hoped to find him superior to his age in this as much as in his nobler deeds he is the true type of chivalry and shows us how very partial and one-sided was its civilizing effect we must remember also in his excuse that he was at that time suffering from a severe and painful illness and suffering even more bitterly in mind at the loss of his proud position and the break-up of his dominions but whilst trying to see what may be said in his excuse we must not shut our eyes to the enormity of the crime the massacre of this innocent population could do no good and could have no beneficial result what the black prince did was to sacrifice all the inhabitants of a prosperous city to his own thirst for revenge after the sack he returned to cognac where he had left the princess there he disbanded his forces feeling too ill for any further enterprise this one exertion seems to have had a bad effect upon him for he became rapidly worse to the great alarm of all around him his physicians ordered him to return at once to england and in sadness of heart he prepared to leave his duchy just before he left he had the misfortune also to lose his eldest son edward he left his authority in aquitaine to his brother john of gaunt and sailed from bordeaux with his wife and his son richard in the beginning of the year thirteen seventy one the voyage was prosperous he soon reached england and went to windsor to meet the king he had left his country full of hope and confidence he returned broken down in health and spirits the tide of english prosperity had turned and it is melancholy to compare the bright beginning of edward the third's power with the last sad years of his reign End of section sixteen part one the england to which the black prince returned was in many ways different from the england which he had left the country had suffered one great loss the good queen philippa so long the faithful wife of edward the third had died in thirteen sixty nine by her wisdom and virtue she had been of great use to the king and had been beloved through all the kingdom deprived of her counsel edward fell under the influence of one of the ladies of her bedchamber alice perrers a woman of great wit and beauty who ruled him at her will and who was used as a tool by the different political parties it was a melancholy end for the bright vigorous king to come to the external splendour and glory of his reign was gone his court had lost its brilliancy he himself seemed almost to have sunk into a premature dotage but though the last years of his reign were not as brilliant as the former years they are perhaps more important for the history of our country for in them we see the beginning of a great political struggle which left most important traces upon the development of our constitution and we are also able to trace the remarkable increase of the power and influence of parliament in these struggles the black prince for the first time in his life appeared as a politician and the part which he took in them earned for him as much glory as his victories of poitiers or Naharaith. all through edward's reign parliament had been increasing in power but we shall not be able to understand the way in which it had developed unless we go back and try to find out what it was at the beginning of edward's reign there had always been under the norman kings a great council composed of the chief men of the kingdom by whose assent and consent the crown acted 
but besides the advice of these nobles the kings felt the need of the money of their people and to obtain this the more easily they summoned some of them to sit side by side with their advisers in the great council the old arrangement of the shires and the shire courts gave a means of getting representatives first knights to be chosen from every shire were summoned to the meetings of the great council and finally simon de montfort in twelve sixty four summoned also burgesses from the chief cities edward i's pressing need for money drove him to follow the example of simon de montfort and summon these representatives to parliament for the purpose of obtaining from them more easily grants of money this privilege however of sending representatives to parliament was not one which the towns were eager to grasp the burgesses did not care to leave their business and undertake an expensive and dangerous journey to attend the parliament when they got there they had nothing to do but vote grants of money it was only slowly and without any outward struggle that the knights who represented the shires and the burgesses who represented the cities came to take any part in legislation it was in this respect that the reign of edward the third saw a great change in the parliaments of edward the first each order had deliberated separately the clergy the barons the knights and the burgesses made their grants separately at first the barons and the knights whose interests were very similar tended to combine the importance of the burgesses however increased during the reign of edward the second as the barons needed their aid in the struggle against the crown as they increased in importance the knights of the shire seemed to have broken off their connection with the barons and joined with the burgesses in the beginning of the reign of edward the third we find the knights and burgesses combined together under the name of the commons that the knights of the shire united with the burgesses and not with the barons is a fact of immense importance in our constitutional history had they united with the barons the aristocratic party would have been the strongest in the state as it was the commons were to be the strongest in the reign of edward the third therefore we find parliament divided very much as it now is into the upper and lower houses edward the first had included representatives of the clergy in his parliament but the clergy though forced to obey his summons had objected to sit with the other members they would only vote supplies in their own provincial convocations that is assemblies of the clergy of the two ecclesiastical divisions or provinces of york and canterbury the clergy wished to keep themselves apart as a privileged order and so did not seize the opportunity given them by edward i of forming part of the national parliament only the spiritual peers that is the members of the higher clergy who by holding land directly from the crown were in the same position as the barons sat in the upper house of parliament it was during the reign of edward the third that the commons first began to feel their power and importance and really to desire the privilege of sitting in parliament this is one of the signs of the progress they made at this time they were eager to make laws and the king himself shared their eagerness and in consequence this reign is marked by fussy legislation on many different points trade and manufactures were the great interests of the age and they were represented by the commons whose desire was to benefit them as they thought by making laws for their regulation they had not learnt the great lesson that trade prospers best when it is left alone by lawmakers continually the laws when made were found to have quite different results to what the lawmakers had expected and had to be repealed the next year this restless desire to interfere in everything was very harmful to trade and industry there were so many changes that people found it difficult to know what the law really was many of the laws were not attended to at all as it was impossible to watch over the people narrowly enough to see that they were obeyed we have seen how parliament tried to fix the price of labour in the same way it tried to fix the price of everything else it fixed the price at which tailors should make clothes at which poultry meat bread and other articles of ordinary consumption were to be sold even the number of dishes which a man might have for dinner was fixed by law 
these laws have left no permanent impression on english history and are interesting only as giving indications of the manners and customs of the times they serve also to show how greatly the energy of parliament increased in this reign there are other and more important things which show us the great increase of its power it had always been the theory of the english constitution that the king could not raise money without the consent of the great council of the realm but this had often been little more than a theory in this reign it became a clearly recognized fact that no money could be raised except with the consent of parliament and we find edward the third always appealing to parliament in his necessities parliament also established its right to petition against grievances and insisted upon the necessity of both houses agreeing before any change could be made in the laws edward the third held frequent parliaments and made it his practice to consult them on all matters even on what had been always supposed to belong entirely to the king the making of war and peace he seemed to wish to throw upon parliament the responsibility of his expensive wars probably he hoped that if the war was ostensibly carried on by the advice of parliament it would be easier to obtain grants of money for its expenses the commons however were not very eager to advise on these difficult points saying that they were too simple and ignorant to be able to do so and promising to agree to anything which the king and his council might decide upon in raising money for his wars edward the third drew largely from the clergy whose wealth made them very tempting subjects for taxation the clergy had long claimed immunity from taxation and from all the burdens of the state but in this age they could not hope to enforce such a claim they were the wealthiest class in the land when the french wars increased the necessities of the crown and obliged edward to demand large subsidies from parliament all eyes were turned to the clergy as the body who though not touched by the general taxes was yet most able to contribute money the clergy could not refuse the king's demands but when they had to pay money to the king they became more unwilling to send the pope the subsidies which he demanded the popes at this time were both poorer and more avaricious than they had been before they regarded england as their great source of wealth and demanded large sums of money from the clergy the effect of this was to put the english clergy as a body in opposition to the pope and to make them more national in their feelings than they had been before they placed the interests of their country far before the interests of the papacy this was a time of great degradation for the papacy which had sunk so low as almost to lose men's reverence the cause of this degradation lay in the struggle which had taken place some time before between philip the fair king of france and pope boniface the eighth boniface's ambition had led him to try and set up the power of the papacy over the affairs of every country of europe but philip the fair would not brook his interference in france he quarrelled with him and sent men to seize and ill-treat him in his own palace boniface died through rage and despair at this insult philip after trying in vain to get complete submission out of the next pope at last succeeded in getting a pope of his own choosing in clement v he promised obedience to philip and fixed his abode at avignon instead of rome that he might be nearer the french king avignon was in provence just outside the french border in the dominions of the king of naples for seventy years the seat of the papacy remained there and this has been called the time of the babylonish captivity the popes during this period acted in the interests of the french king most of them were french by birth all of them were french in their sympathies their european position seemed lost and with it the awe and reverence with which they had been regarded the english at war with france were not likely to bear the encroachments made by a french pope and clergy laity and king joined together to repel them End of section 17 2 the first great statute directed against the interference of the pope was the statute against provisors passed in 1351 the pope was in the habit of making provisions for vacant benefices by appointing to them men of his own choice 
and it was against this custom that the statute was directed it naturally seemed very unjust to englishmen that english benefices should be given away to cardinals and other members of the papal court who drew the revenues from their benefices without ever coming near them but we must remember that at this time great benefices were not bestowed upon men as rewards for spiritual eminence they were the prizes which were given to great statesmen to courtiers and royal favourites the ecclesiastics appointed by the king of england had no more intention of residing on their benefices than the ecclesiastics appointed by the pope the pope only claimed the right to reward his servants in the same way as the king did this arrangement by which pope and king alike used the church revenues for their own purposes was too convenient for edward the third to make him really eager for any reformation the statute of provisors might forbid papal provisions but it was never strictly kept nor did the statute which followed it called from its first word in the original latin the statute of primunire prove more successful this statute forbade any appeals being made from the king's courts to the papal court and forbade the introduction of papal bulls into england without royal permission the great interest of these statutes lies in the fact that they express the growing hostility aroused in the laity by the ambition and wealth of the clergy the writings of the times are filled with complaints of the abuses among the clergy langland tells us in a fine passage in the vision of piers ploughman the miserable pass that religion had come to in those days and now is religion a rider a roamer by streets a leader of love days and a land buyer a pricker on a palfrey from manor to manor and heap of hounds at his ears as he allured were and but if his knave kneel that shall his cap bring he loureth on him and asketh him who taught him courtesy the whole poem is full of allusions to the manner of life of the clergy their ill-gotten wealth and the neglect of their duties in another place he says bishops and bachelors both masters and doctors that have cure under christ and crowning in token and sign that they should shrive their parishioners preach and pray for them and the poor faith live in london in lent and other times some serve the king and his silver talent in chequer and in chancery in an extravagant age the clergy were especially marked by their wild and foolish extravagance their love for fine clothes for the chase for show and pageantry of all kinds even the mendicant orders partook of this and the franciscan friars who had pledged themselves to the most absolute poverty amassed wealth and only obeyed the dictates of their order by abstaining from all labour as the political ballad of the time says full wisely do they preach and say but as they preach nothing do they and even of their preaching langland says i find these friars all the four orders preach to the people for profit of themselven glossed the gospel as them good liked the church seemed to have lost all its early simplicity and to have departed entirely from the teaching of the apostles the clergy absorbed all the chief offices of state this had come about naturally from the fact that till now they had been the only educated body in the state and so they only had been fit to transact its business but now learning had become more general a new class that of the lawyers was springing up and men were no longer willing to see everything in the hands of the clergy the great opponent of their power was john of gaunt duke of lancaster the king's third son he was an ambitious and unscrupulous man and his aim was to get the entire control of affairs during the last years of edward the third's reign his opposition to the clergy sprung only from his own personal ambition he wished to exclude the clergy from the offices of the state that he might fill them with his own creatures the power of the commons was as hateful in his eyes as the power of the clergy he put himself at the head of a reactionary body of great barons who wished to bring back the old order of things and restore the power of their own class with john of gaunt was united a man of a very different stamp this was john wycliffe who by his learning had risen into importance in the university of oxford he had shown himself an eager student well versed in logic and metaphysics deeply learned in theology 
and delighting in the mathematical and natural sciences the university had not been slow to recognize his distinction he had been made fellow of merton then the leading college afterwards he was master of balliol hall and lastly he had been made warden of canterbury hall the new college founded by simon islip archbishop of canterbury he was first called into political prominence in thirteen sixty six when edward the third called upon him to answer the demand made by pope urban the sixth for the homage of england and the tribute promised by king john in his answer whilst calling himself the humble and obedient son of the roman church he clearly showed how determined he was to take the national side and resist papal encroachments he was equally opposed to the ambition and wealth of the clergy and this was the cause of his connection with john of gaunt it is impossible to believe that there can have been any real sympathy between the two men wycliffe the zealous student and austere reformer and john of gaunt the complete man of the world corrupt in his life narrow and unscrupulous in his policy absorbed in selfish ambition they had however this in common that each wished to destroy the power of the clergy though from very different motives john of gaunt wished to humiliate the church wycliffe wished to purify it john of gaunt resented the official arrogance of the bishops and their large share of temporal power wycliffe hoped to restore the long-lost apostolic purity of the church it was in the parliament of thirteen seventy one that the first great blow at the power of the clergy was struck the duke of lancaster was away in aquitaine but we cannot doubt that parliament was inspired by his influence when it petitioned the king that only secular men might be employed in his court and household chief amongst the clergy in high office at that time was william of wickham bishop of winchester the lord high chancellor he had first become important as the king's surveyor and architect at windsor here the king had undertaken important and extensive works for the improvement and extension of the castle wickham had a strong natural taste for architecture and seems moreover to have been a wise and practical man of business he became the king's chaplain his principal secretary and the keeper of the privy seal in thirteen sixty seven he was elevated to the see of winchester and appointed lord chancellor he was a most liberal man and had the interests of the people sincerely at heart to posterity he is chiefly known by his munificence in founding winchester school and new college at oxford two foundations which have greatly promoted the cause of learning he seems in all cases to have used his power and his wealth for the public good but john of gaunt and his party hated him on account of his wealth and position whilst in wycliffe's eyes he was not spiritual enough for a bishop wycliffe thought that no ecclesiastic ought to hold office or busy himself in secular affairs he no doubt alludes to wickham when he says bitterly benefices instead of being bestowed on poor clerks are heaped on one wise in building castles or in worldly business it was against wickham that the petition of parliament against giving office to ecclesiastics was chiefly directed he was forced to resign the seals the other ecclesiastics in office had to give up their posts and laymen creatures of john of gaunt were appointed to fill them sir richard le was appointed treasurer and sir robert thorpe lord chancellor the same parliament also petitioned the king about the unsatisfactory state of the navy and granted a subsidy for putting it into a proper condition but no great expedition was planned to reconquer the lost possessions in france the war went on in a desultory way and nothing particular was gained on either side the commons were growing tired of paying for it they further showed their animosity to the clergy by decreeing that the tax which was to be levied to provide the subsidy voted for the king was to be raised also from all those lands which had passed into the hands of the clergy before the twentieth year of edward i the clergy met together in convocation in thirteen seventy three to consider what course they should take under these circumstances they met at st paul's where whittlesey archbishop of canterbury presided he was too weak both in mind and body to take an important part in the proceedings he summoned all his strength to preach the opening sermon 
after which he sunk down exhausted simon sudbury bishop of london a man of the duke of lancaster's party succeeded him as president of convocation the conduct of the clergy was marked by moderation they had no wish to resist obstinately the demands of the commons but they complained that they already had to tax themselves heavily to provide subsidies for the king and to meet the demands of the pope they said that they would willingly give more to the king if he would free them from the exactions of the pope the king caused an embassy to be sent to the pope stating the grievances of the clergy but the pope would do nothing but promise to send ambassadors to a congress to be held at some future time the duke of lancaster's party was now in complete possession of all power in the kingdom it remained to be seen how far they would be able to win the confidence of the people in the conduct of the war they had been by no means successful the duke himself had not mended matters by marrying constance daughter of pedro the cruel and assuming in her right the title of king of castile this only threw henry of trastamara more than ever on the side of france in thirteen seventy two the earl of pembroke was sent with an english fleet to assist the duke of lancaster but now the folly of having turned spain into a bitter enemy became apparent the english fleet was intercepted by a spanish fleet and completely defeated pembroke himself was taken prisoner and the english naval power received a blow from which it took long to recover Dis 